everybody, and welcome to episode three of Everyday Eternal. I'm Sam Craven. I'm joined by Jacob Corey, Matt Pavlik, and Sean O'Brien. Today we'll be talking about the results of a couple different tournaments from this past weekend. Uh, we'll also be uh, looking at, again, discussing how non-basics are prevalent in the format and what you can do to attack and exploit that. And then for some listener feedback, we're going to go over for just a moment or two how the new sideboard rule affects Legacy in general. So let's get right into it. Um, Sean, do you want to tell us about the New York Stacks Exchange results? Yeah, so um, a few things. One, uh, this was uh, a $100 entry fee uh, proxy vintage uh, in Long Island, New York. And uh, they got 78 players for a $100 tournament, which was which was pretty impressive. I, I thought I might get a chance to go. Uh, plans ended up getting in the way. Um and as far as I could see from the coverage, uh, the event went off really well. Um, and there were some interesting uh, top eight results. Uh, most notably, uh, there were no dredge decks. Uh, and the only workshop deck uh, was actually a Genesis Chamber Skull Clamp deck. Uh, so to call it a, a workshop deck, it, it certainly wasn't one of the traditional pillars. Um, but there were some nice... Uh, Diver, uh, diversity in the top eight uh, and some nice diversity in the field. Um, another thing of note was there were two blue decks that featured no less than three restoration angels in the top eight, uh, which is definitely uh, new ground for uh, for vintage. I think uh, I don't think restoration angels made a uh, made a real appearance in any kind of major uh, vintage tournament. So. Some interesting stuff. Uh, the event was run uh, was won by Paul Mastriano, who piloted Suicide Jay's Fault. Um, for those of you not familiar with that deck, it's it's a Dark Confidant Jace deck, uh, full force of will, three Jaces, uh, and usually tries to tinker out Blight Steel or Vault Key. Oh, pretty unusual choice for three spell snare main. Yeah, so he he made a he made a definitive choice to. Uh, to combat sphere effects, maybe uh, oath with spell snare, um, and I think possibly you, standstill as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and perhaps uh, quite a bit of land still. So, um, and you can also see you can see in the two blue white decks, the decks that feature uh, restoration angel, they're basically the old bomberman list, um, but you've gotten rid of the awkward salvager who you know is about as good in combat as Poland. Uh, and replaced it with Restoration Angel, which is great against Jays. No offense to the Polish army, if there's any listeners in Poland. But, um, and yeah, everybody running Spell Snare all over the place. Um, it's a wonder that the, the Burning Oath deck, uh, the one Burning Oath deck that did make it, made it. So, uh, a pretty interesting field. Um, the actual breakdown uh, of the field included a pretty good balance. So you have a field of 78, you have nine running Dredge, uh, you have six running uh, Dark Rituals in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, about 16 assorted Null Rod-type decks, Stony Silence decks. Uh, and then the 18 rest workshops. workshops. Yeah, and 18 workshops. So, And even amongst the workshop decks, you see um, you know, a reasonable amount of diversity culminating in a, in a completely, not completely new look, because um, this deck's actually been around for a while, but... Uh, Certainly, a, a new cut or a new cut on uh, workshops, which is just pure ag, pure aggro, um, just trying to merge permanent you out um, using Genesis Chamber. So, a pretty interesting event. I'm I'm 
sad I couldn't make it because uh, it looked like it was a blast. Yeah, definitely excited to uh, test against some of these decks, maybe even play against them this weekend in uh, in Vegas. Yeah, yeah, I would be I'd be interested to see uh, if anybody tries to go this route. I know um, this these decks were probably geared towards uh, the Northeast metagame. Um, you can see a lot of anti workshop hate main. Um, so, you know, that might not work at, uh, at Las Vegas, but sort of the, the principle behind Restoration Angel being, uh, an anti-Jace creature, a, a creature that's useless against Jace, plus being this super value creature in a deck with Click, Trinket Mage, uh, and sometimes even Snapcaster Mage, um, is pretty sweet, so... What about uh, Star City results? We had uh, Columbus at the Origin Game Fair. Uh, most notable to me was there was a lands deck that came in third, which is a deck that we don't hear about all that often. It pops up every few months and just takes a top eight or a top four. So that's pretty cool. But I'm pretty sure Bobby has been playing this deck the last few Star Cities as well. His name seems super familiar. Yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. I don't know. Let's Let's click on him. I played him at Legacy Champs probably three years ago, and he was playing lands. Um, so he sticks to his I guns. Think... Yeah, I think this situation is a matter of, like, this person knows his deck really well, so it didn't matter what was going to happen, he was still going to do really well with this deck. But it just so happens that lands is really well positioned right now because it's just a better control deck than... A lot of stuff out there. Same as I noticed Jeff Hoogland, who's been playing um, four-color loam or just loam in general for the last little while. Top eight, top whatever, 16 again. Again. He's, he's playing a deck that he obviously knows how to play really well, and it just so happens that it's really good against the meta. Four Chalice of the Void tends to be pretty good. They both run Punishing Fire, which uh, compared to the lands deck that Bobby brought to Legacy Champs, you know, two or three years ago, he didn't have a, a utility burn spell like that available to him. But um, having Mana Denial and having Punishing Fire kind of jumps on what we talked about last week when it comes to crushing some of the, the greedier mana bases and the decks that rely on Deathrite Shaman heavily to power out their their spells and Planeswalkers. I think uh, I think for this tournament we definitely see a, a theme of <clears throat> lands and land hate. Um, for instance, in the Bug Walkers list by Michael Kletz, uh, he runs Intuition and Life Revolom Engine to essentially recycle his wastelands and uh, factories, essentially putting a lot of pressure on uh, fair deck mana bases. The, the number two deck is also a mana denial deck. It's running four stifles, um, four wastelands, and aggressive clocks like Delver and Geist of St. Traff. So, um, you know, I could see that deck getting off to a fast start. Stifling a fetch, lightning bolting a uh, death right shaman, yeah, and just pounding his opponent down with a geist. Also, too, if you notice the Grim Lava Mancer there, we were talking about Grim Lava Mancer last week as a possible utility tool against all these like X ones that uh, that the Esperblade uh, decks are playing. And look here, Grim Lava Mancer. And you'll notice a common thread. We've been talking about mana denial. Uh, that's something we'll be talking about later today. It's something we feel is really strong in the meta right now, and we'll be getting into that a bit later. Uh, in first place was, yet again, Todd Anderson, piloting Esper Deathblade. Uh, going against what we had suggested in our last podcast, he actually made his mana worse with a, a, with a couple abrupt decay main board. 
Uh, anyone have any thoughts on this, or do we think we pretty much covered this last week? No, it gets even oh. worse. There's a Caracas in the mana base, and it's up to three wastelands now. <laughs> yeah, it's odd. It's odd that uh, while he ruined his mana base, um, some of the games that we watched, uh, it looks like the Caracas played a huge role um, in those games, uh, both to keep legendary creatures out for his opponent as well as provide the necessary white mana at the most opportune times for him. Well, you are truly a pro's pro if you can draw that one Caracas when you need it. It certainly takes a lot of luck to win tournaments, so Todd Anderson proves that again, um, as well as being a good player. Personally, I disagree with the move towards Abrupt Decay. I'm not sure, like, maybe there's a niche of removal that he needed. But I notice also, too, they've shifted away from Snapcaster Mages. So what this kind of means is, I mean, y instead of having the plan of, say, four swords, four Snapcaster Mages like they were having before, you had this really awesome removal suite to kind of handle any creature deck. Again, you're getting to a situation where I've removed my Snapcaster Mages because everybody's running Deathrite Shaman. So that means my Snapcaster is a liability. So I'm going to add more real removal. Hence the Abrupt Decay and the Detention Sphere. Now, the question is, is this a good move or not? Well, I think this basically means that any fair deck, like again, like we were talking about, like say Maverick or Jund or whatever, who's playing more creatures than them, is just going to run them the fuck over. Yeah, it lowers the blue count also. Um, so he still has three forces, but um, you know, if you look at the blue count in this deck, it's it's pretty. There's a paucity of blue cards in here. Um, He's got. 14 blue cards. I think it's skirting the line for uh, how many blue cards you would need. It would also explain why he would go choose a card like Detention Sphere, which... Um, it does have the awesome keyword. <clears throat> it, it does have the awesome keyword, being blue and castable with islands. Um, in some of the games that I've watched him play uh, from the coverage, the Game 1 Detention Sphere actually played a huge pivotal role for um, Todd Anderson to make his comeback from X1 earlier in the day. So, um, I think in one instance it took out three Noble Hierarchs to set his opponent back to two mana. And in another instance uh, took two Deathrite Shamans to, again, set his opponent back to two mana. So again, we see where essentially controlling the amount of uh, mana opponent uh, you allow your opponent to play with um, really sets the tempo for the game. Well, while we're on that, do we want to go ahead and transition into that discussion? Wasteland, my favorite Wasteland. land. That card is awesome. Um, it's not blue, and you can't cast it using islands, so um, we're, we'll just have to call it a great, great land. It costs zero. That's even better than costing blue. <laughs> so in short, our feeling is, and we discussed this a little bit last week, that the mana bases in general in Legacy are very, very greedy right now. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of non-basics running around. Um, you can see in these Esper lists, a lot of them are running at most three basics, some of them two. Um, in Todd Anderson's case uh, this week, he's running zero non-basic lands. That's a lot of Wasteland targets. In addition, there's a lot of non-land mana. Um, most of that comes in the form of creatures that cost one, which means they can be swords, they can be lightning bolted, they can be abrupt decayed uh, and or disfigured uh, or disfigured if you're running disfigure and <laughs> <laughs> and that means that um, if you can attack a mana pace you're going to be in a really good position for the rest of the game because obviously casting cards is really important in magic the gathering maybe we can talk about um, some of the different ways to play wasteland obviously putting four in a deck 
and calling it good is uh, probably worthy enough to make top eight in most local tournaments. Um, but specifically, different uh, strategies that Wasteland can be employed. Um, for instance, uh, you can use it as a tempo element, um, essentially to buy a turn. You see this a lot being used in a Maverick or a Goblin deck, um, where all you really want to do is essentially buy a turn for your aggro plan to uh, close the game out. Yeah, the the original plan with Wasteland all the way back in Tempest um, was any deck whose curve essentially stopped at two or one, um, you know, would then would then essentially Wasteland its opponent out, you know, having no need to make another land drop, uh, you know, with Sly being kind of the first deck or the, the old, uh, you know, Jackal Pup was the classic strategy. So. So the original tempo strategy with Wasteland is my deck has ones and twos, so I'm going to play my one out, and then I'm going to waste you out from here on out, sacrificing my own land drop, which doesn't matter because all I'm doing is playing Delvers and uh, Nimble Mongeese and um, other one-casting cost stuff. So Wasteland is a, is a tempo strategy. It's also a utility strategy, uh, being able to nug utility lands, and then I think you know, against some I, of these I think decks. you would be able to, Sean. You of all people would probably be best be able to describe wasteland as a prison strategy. Yeah, the final piece then would be just just wasteland as a lockout strategy, either to lock them out from one color uh, or to lock them out of the game entirely. So it can be a tempo play, it can be a utility play to push a, a creature through or nug a special land, or three it can just be a a strategy on, on which a whole deck is built where you want to just lock somebody out of a color or. Uh, combine it with Crucible or Life from the Loam, and then um, uh, perhaps even a Sphere Effect to just lock an opponent out of the game. Going back to the uh, the Rug uh, or Tempo Threshold strategy, um, a lot of times you see it paired up with uh, Stifle or Taxing Counters, or even Taxing Creatures like, uh, like Thalia. Um, and I think uh, Maverick used that strategy where uh, Temple Thresh used like Stifle and Wasteland and Spell Pierce to keep the opponent operating at a very um, early game, essentially. Um, one of the highlights there is uh, using a low curve to uh, and small weenie creatures to be able to push that through. There was a Death and Taxes list. I think it placed uh, 13th. Um, and that deck's another deck that you know, kind of rides the middle ground. It's it's mana denial with Wasteland, Port. And then it also has some Sphere, sphere effects like Thalia. And, you know, their Jackal Pup is essentially Aether Vial. So once they play their Vial out, um, they're more than willing to sacrifice their land drop um, to Wasteland their opponent's mana because they're planning on playing the majority of their 25 to 30 creatures out via Vial. So, um, you know, that's a deck that, that if it was played more, um, you know, I think you would see it you would see it uh, have a real favorable matchup against these super greedy mana bases. I'm not sure the deck is that popular, so. And aside from Wasteland, you're also running four Rashidden Port, at least in this particular list. You're going to be running some number of Flicker Wisps, which can hit a land just for a turn if you need it to. And you're running Mangara, which can take a land permanently, and that's a lot of mana denial right there. Yeah, it's a strong deck. It's a strong deck that... Uh can attack from a lot of angles, um, but I think it's a deck that has a lot of subtleties. Um, a couple of people at my local store play it, or have played it on and off for the last year, and you can tell that, that there's a massive difference between the folks who just pick that deck up off the, off the internet, 
and the and the folks who have played that deck for a while. Um, and there's a lot of synergies. All the cards are synergistic with each other. Um, there's a very specific order you want to play the creatures in. Um, it has a lot of a lot of ways to interact on the stack, even though it's not a blue deck. Um, you mentioned Flicker Wisp. You know, I could write a a tome on the number of tricks you can pull with Flicker Wisp in conjunction with an Aether Vial. So, uh, Death and Taxes, I think, is a, would be a powerful deck now against these these greedy mana bases. But I just think it's uh, it's you know it's not popular for a number of reasons. Learning curve. It's just a non-brainstorm deck. There's probably a it's got a lot of things going against it. So. Four Caracasus is pretty rough for most people's collection, too. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't a couple of years ago, but now it sure is. Yeah, even Port's 50 bucks. So, On the topic of, uh, of unpopular non-blue decks, Blood Moon is actually a really, really good answer to a metagame such as the Star City Open. If you just look at the top 16 decks, um, I, I think there may be only one deck that might be able to get out of it, um, and that's the Death and Taxes deck, uh, oddly enough. Just because they have basics and Aethervile. The Omnitel deck, maybe. They got 10 islands. And a lot of fetch lands, though. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, Omnitel caves to another card in, that's commonly played in Blood Moon decks, and that's Trinisphere. So, um, you know, a Blood Moon deck, you know, packed with Trinispheres and Chalices, um, could certainly make a splash uh, if the whole metagame looked like this top 16. Um, you know, those decks have the same flakiness associated with. With any stompy style deck, um, they tend to mulligan a lot. They tend to mulligan poorly. So, um, but Blood Moon could be a powerful strategy right now. There was um, actually a deck I built for one of my friends. He's getting into Legacy and asked me to build him a deck. So, uh, you know, I hopped onto the source and looked at the new and development form, which is probably a bad idea in disguise. It's fun. But, uh, it, it's a fun adventure for sure. Um, but I ended up actually finding a strategy close to my heart. Uh, I'm a mono-red kind of mage. And uh, I stumbled across the mono-red sneak attack deck, also known as Big Red. Uh, and this deck's pretty interesting. It's essentially a, uh, a show-and-tell kind of deck, but without the stigma of being a show-and-tell deck. So uh, it runs very similar um, shell. It has eight enablers. It's got four... River Breach and Force Sneak Attack. Um, for Acceleration, it runs Seeving Song and Spirit Guides, as well as um, the Fast Mana Double Lands. Um, and for Disruption, instead of uh, Force of Will and Cantripping, which obviously a big hit when you're not playing blue, um, it chooses to play four Blood Moon to kind of disrupt mana bases as well as. You're saying uh, there's no stigma attached with it, and then you're playing four Blood Moon. Well, just because your friends will hate you. I think we discussed in episode two that the more fun you'll have by removing the fun factor for your opponent. I agree. I mean, is that any less or more fun than getting, you know, cunning wished out of a game with release the ants? I mean, honestly, I'd rather be blood mooned and watch somebody beat the crap out of me with a world's fine worm than watching somebody wish for release the ants. Yeah, and the best part about Wormspring Worm is that every opponent asks, wait, it has Trample, too? Yup. And it's that good, kids. He's the green Grizzlebrand. Nah, I wouldn't go that far. It's probably the green Emrakul. <laughs> is there anything else we have on the mana denial front? 
Yeah, I would just like to talk about how as for Deathblade is using its wastelands, because we've noticed that it, the number of wastelands in this deck has gone basically from zero, or one at some point, now up to three. So people may be wondering, like, you've got this awful mana base, and yet they're playing their own wastelands, even though you're so color-intensive. So maybe just want to talk about how they're using their wastelands versus, say, like the second-place deck. Yeah, I mean, there's always a... I personally don't... I mean, over a nine-round tournament, I couldn't see any of these mana bases working without an exorbitant amount of fortune. But And I know Brainstorm glues a lot of this together. Deathrite glues a lot of this together. But, um, you know, that deck can still make the play of turn one, Deathrite, Shaman. Um, turn two, let's say their opponent just ponders off of a non-basic. They might just wasteland and go into Stoneforge. You know what I mean? It's not... Uh, it's not a, a terrible play if you think your opponent's uh, mana tight, but... I think there's a lot of depth to when to play and when to activate Wastelands in a lot of these varied strategy decks, um, especially in a deck like Deathrite um, Blade, where you're able to use the Wasteland to essentially activate your Deathrite Shaman to produce mana. And um, it actually has the net positive of producing two turns worth of mana by activating it. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Deathrite Shaman and Wasteland being paired up um, in greater frequency over the next coming weeks. Um, especially because it's just such backbreaking to an opponent who has a, um, a weak draw or maybe a slow draw. Setting them back a turn um, more likely will allow you to get to your later curve. For instance, like Jace or Liliana or I mean, even Jun can play Bloodbraid off and accrue massive, massive advantage. I would actually like to see Jund um, come back to the forefront in this type of metagame. It has the aggressive feel to it. It has access to Punishing Fire, which is very good against the quasi-mirrors that we see with Deathrite Shaman and Dark Confinant. As well as um, access to a full four Wasteland in those decks. I mean... That deck seems really well positioned. I mean, between Abrupt Decay, Lightning Bolt, Punishing Fires, Loliana, like, I'm pretty sure you're controlling this creature matchup. And, I feel like an interesting sideboard card right now. Don't. This is gonna sound weird, but Goblin Sharpshooter. Hold on. Yes, that does so sound weird. However. I'm curious we, how you got to that conclusion, Matt. Well, there, everybody's running a lot of, like, Dark Confidant and Snapcaster Mage, and Vanillion Cleek. Like, a lot of X1s, and also, too, I mean, to combat uh, the Jun decks, if the Jun decks kind of come back a little bit, uh, Lingering Souls becomes better. So, I mean, if you're running into a lot of decks with Lingering Souls again, or at some point in the future, Sharpshooter gunning down all those little guys, not necessarily a bad thing. Or Dark Blast, I think, is the other card that probably could give a run right now. You know, Sure. Jun sure. doesn't mind filling up its graveyard, and um, and Dark Blast, uh, you know, Dark Blast hits as you mentioned a bunch of uh, a bunch of the most wanted guys right now, and then the other, you know, you can play tricks with Sylvan Library. There, are, there are things to do with uh, with dredge cards. So, but Jund, you know, Jund is one of those decks. I think it gets a stereotype as being a a, a derp caster guy turn it sideways deck. So again, I think we have probably have some. Uh, you know, some appeal. It, it certainly feels like that when you play against it. I don't, I don't know, I haven't played it, but that's what it feels like when I play against it. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it that doesn't have a lot of line of lines of play other than rape your hand, play my big man, punch you in the face. So um, that may not appeal to a lot of players who want to feel like they have a little bit more control over the top of their library. Um, you know, maybe some Jun deck that comes back with two or three Sylvan libraries or something. Um, where it gives which, I itself, never, you know. which I never understood. Uh, a lot of the Jun decks were running zero Sylvan library or one. The card is really, really good, folks. Like, I, I don't know why you're not running, you know, two to three. I mean, I know if I'm playing against a Jun deck and they suddenly drop a Sylvan library against me, guess what gets abrupt decayed? Like, 100% every day, Sylvan library must die. Alright, let me paint this scenario then. Suppose you have an opponent who goes turn three using Death Ray Shaman, of course, cast Bob and Dark, uh, Dark Confidant and Sylvan Library. Um, if you had only one Abrupticate, what would be your target? Sylvan. I agree, Sylvan Library. Sylvan is going to let them at least get a little bit more choice over what they do, and Bob is going to at least keep hurting them. Well, also, too, the Sylvan Library lets them set up the Dark Confidant as well, the next turn. So if you... I mean, leaving them both alive means you're going to die very, very soon. However, I mean, depending on what I'm playing, Abrupt Decay going for the Sylvan Library so they can't actually dig. Uh, because sometimes they're in a position where you can just go 8 life, dig deep, now I've got 3 extra cards. Like, I mean, a lot of the time when I'm playing junk against, say, Miracles or something, if I land Sylvan Library, the first thing I'm doing is just digging and drawing drawing my three cards. And a lot of time that's usually game over for like the slow control deck that just can't deal with Sylvan Library. So if I had to abrupt to get one thing, it would at least be the uh, it would be the Sylvan Library. It also has pretty good synergy with Liliana. You know, you can get up a couple cards and then the discard effect isn't so painful on you. Or even on the flip side, being able to stack your deck, or at least the top few draws, take an irrelevant card and then activate Liliana so you're keeping the, the good stuff on top. Yeah. Also lets you set up your cascade. You get to dig a little deeper and say, you know, this time I would rather have a visions of uh, than I would, uh, or an ancestral vision than I would a termogoyf. So let me put the termogoyf on underneath my ancestral vision so I can draw a bunch of cards. Sylvan Library. Hell of a card. Yeah. It's got a lot of Folks, words on if it. You're not, if you're not playing it yet, and you're playing green, look into it. If you're Esper Deathblade, stay the fuck away from it. It's ours. You can't have our library, our green. Esper Deathblade <laughs> needs more green. It needs to be Dark Bant Blade. So also, too, if they Notion Thief in response to your Sylvan Library, folks, choose not to activate Sylvan Library. It is a trigger. And they don't, yeah. and they don't, and they don't draw, they won't get to draw the cards, because you just draw normally. So don't fall for the trap of activating it. Ah, uh, Notion Thief. We've yet to see more Notion Thief in the format. And it makes me sad that there's still only one in the sideboard. For the same argument that we can make for Sylvan Library and showing up as two or three of in uh, green midrange decks, we should be seeing the same argument for blue decks running Notion Thief. Well, I think the Lotion Thief is not quite popular enough yet because of the fact that there is only one Jace on the field at a time. So, I agree. So are you, are you foreshadowing that uh, come July we might see a resurgence of Notion Thief? I am saying that, yes. Does anybody here know what Foreshadow actually does, the card? Don't, don't I cheat. have an internet connection. Don't cheat, don't cheat. No, I don't know. 
I want to say it's a Tempest block card. Yeah, it is. It's 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 a little earlier than that. It's visions. It's a slow trip uh, predict. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. You can get it in Korean. Look it up, Jacob. You'd love it. You'd love it. Okay, I'm gonna buy up the internet from it. Um, probably just just to wrap up our topic on uh, attacking crappy mana bases and legacy. What decks could you play to jump on it? The other deck that I would cite would be uh, Metalworker or Mud. Um, I think it's got the mana denial element of Wasteland. Plus, it has the backbreaker of, of Chalice and Transfer. Um, but unlike some of the other color-based stompy chalice decks, everything's colorless, and you have the the hammer that is lodestone golem, um, and the deck finishes like no other with, you know, your pick of robots, steel hell kite, forge master, or just golem. Or if you wanted to, sundering. Titan, yeah, I was gonna say that that seems like the quintessential really one-sided Armageddon. Yeah, you may four you may get four against Esper Deathblade with Sundering Titan. That would be an exciting Four against Jund. <laughs> uh there's a guy in our local meta who's been playing it recently and uh he's been pretty much if he gets to two or three lands, he pretty much blows out everyone. And it's again it's the it's the attacking the mana base while not caring about your own because you're doing things like, Oh, I'm gonna play a wasteland every turn, it doesn't matter because I have a metal worker out. Yeah, or yeah. They're playing, or they're playing artifact mana of some kind, like Mox Opal, or if you had Grim Monolith, or whatever. Or you're really clever and playing um, Sheevan Reefs to not become affected while still keep um, casting your colored spells. Well, you have wow. Um, wow. you have two builds of that, not to dive too much into Metalworker, but I think they fall into two camps. You know, one is the one that wants four keys uh, and is trying to get either a Grim Monolith to double tap, or in some cases, Thran Dynamo, I guess, or best case, your Metalworker. And then the other one that just wants to stick a chalice on one and move on from there. And uh, so another great tool for that deck too is Cavern of Souls. I played I played Metalworker at the store a few times with uh, with Cavern, uh, often naming Construct, and uh, that's a wicked addition to that deck, being able to ignore the force on your uh, on your Metalworker. So I think in summation, if you want to be playing the decks you probably want to be playing if you're trying to beat like all the Esper Deathblades slash awful mana bases or anything with Blood Moon, Recurring Wasteland, Punishing Fires decks like the 43 Land or any sort of like Loam long game deck like, or like Enchantress. Anything that's basically has a good solid mana base or just shits on small creatures. I think that's basically where you want to be. Let's not forget Seismic Assault. <coughs> Oh God! Well, I didn't. I didn't want to delve too hard into Seismic Assault because I'm going to talk about it for a while now. But card's so good. We'll save it for another topic. I'm sure Jeff uh, Hoogland will continue his top 16 finishes, uh, especially since Star City seems to be focusing on the interior East Coast at this point. Like, I mean, sorry, I, I gotta talk about this at least for a second. <laughs> Go give for me a it. Go for it. I mean, the deck. I mean, I'm I'm looking at his list now. He's running four Mox Diamond, and he's running no. Deathrite Shaman, which I know he's running the Chalice of the Voids, but I feel like with a Loam deck right now, like, Devastating Dreams, ridiculously powerful. Punishing Fires, Abrupt Decay, Sylvan Library, like, I've been playing the same kind of uh, base for a long time, and it, like, this is a really good place to start. Chalice of the Void, totally shutting down all their cantrips, their removal on your guys. Legit. Uh, I think I would actually be playing Terravore as well. I love that card. Terravor, Terravor sounds a little bit derpy, and I know people are like, oh, well, what about Knight of the Reliquary? Terravor has Trample. 
That's a big deal. Uh, a lot of people don't think about it, but it's a big deal. Um, not much to say, like, running over them and getting through, like, killing all of their guys and then possibly, like, say, their Jace or something. That's, that's really relevant. Um, what else could you be running in here? You could run Deathrite Shaman as well. Actually, recently, recently this weekend, I actually played against um, a, a player, long-time aggro loan player, and uh, he was running the full four Deathrite Shaman and Punishing Fire, Brett Piquet, he ran Liliana's. He crushed my soul when I was playing Elves. He went, turn one, Deathrite Shaman. Turn two, Liliana, sack your guy. Turn three, Seismic Assault, get Loam active. I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, I... I don't think I can come back from this, like, in the match. Like, this one game just completely set me back. Yep. Like, Seismic, like, I, oh, he's not even running Seismic at all. I didn't even notice that. I just assumed it was in the deck. Like, I just looked at this list and went, sure, he's obviously playing it. Apparently he's not. Seismic Assault is ridiculous. I mean, sure, they're going to get your Looms if they're running Deathrite Shamans or whatever. But, I mean, you have Life from the Looms, you have Punishing Fires, you have so many cards that they have to target with their Deathrite Shaman. I mean... Once you get Seismic Assault online, you kill a few of their guys, like, that's it. They can't keep a Jace on board, they can't keep any guys on board, and every turn you're dealing them 6-plus damage. There was it's, there was a guy at our local, um, he's probably listening to this podcast, actually, who brought, I think almost card for card, uh, maybe he didn't, oh, he didn't have a fourth Dark Confidant, and he replaced it with what he called the Red Dark Confidant, Tybalt the Blood Fiend. Oh, that's terrible, ugh. <laughs> but anyway, he, he brought a, a basically a card for card copy of uh, of that loan deck, um, and despite punting more than Raul Alegre, he still managed to top four uh, our, our Wednesday last week. Um, the, de the deck's just powerful, and I think Devastating Dreams is just it's just the biggest blowout. Players don't plan for Armageddon effects anymore. Uh, nobody sandbags lands, um, and. Part of the rationale for not running the Deathrite Shaman is probably just being so committed to that card, um, and just wanting your giant knight to be the only thing standing after, you know, after the devastating dream. I think we touched the uh, the subject of how to fight un or greedy mana bases pretty well. Let me throw yeah. out a question here real quick to uh, to you guys. Suppose you were playing at Star City event this Sunday. What would you play? Sam? Sam? I think I would probably go with a rug variant with four stifle, four wasteland. I would likely still play junk all the way, but I would tweak it. Um, right now I'm playing Lingering Souls, and I would probably throw some Loams in the board to help with all these decks that are running around with wastelands. I'd also run Vampire Hexmage. Interesting. <clears throat> so, Vampire Hexmage, uh, you probably know it from the Hexmage Depths decks from like three years ago. Everybody went nuts. Or your tribal vampire deck. Yes, Sean. That's exactly where most people would know it from. Uh, but the card is, is really good right now because it's a 2-1 first strike. So against all the Esper decks that are running around with their little 2-1s, you're, you're actually swinging in for 2. They don't have any good blockers for it. We talked about this, I think, last week or the week before. Uh, plus, it stops them from playing a Jace. I mean, they can play a Jace, but you're immediately mucking their Jace. You have an onboard answer, a preemptive answer for Jace, which is something that a lot of the BGX decks have a problem with. If there's, say, like an empty board, or you're at parity, and suddenly blue deck drops Jace and suddenly just pulls ahead and wins the game. Having 
an answer, say, like Vampire Hexmage, as opposed to something like Maelstrom Pulse, which they have a turn to kind of, like, say, draw their cards and get a Force of Will, so you're like, oh, I have my Maelstrom Pulse here. Well, that might not be good enough. Whereas Hexmage gives them something to worry about that they have to remove first before they go for their chase. Yeah. And you know what? Most people don't know how First Strike works in combat. That, too. I mean, planning on other people screwing up is not something I like to do. However, if it works out, like, okay. That's the only way I plan my plays. I ask myself, what's, what's the best play here? Is my opponent going to mess up? If yes, here's my line of play. I don't even think about what the <laughs> correct line of play is. <laughs> Tends to work out what more do... often than not in Star City events. What? Where do I get the most bang for my buck? Okay. Let's assume he's going to screw it up. Go for it. The the idea of a bluff or a, a mind trick is not to be underestimated in a format like Legacy. Um, and on that topic, I would actually take a uh, big red deck, essentially mono-red sneak attack, to a Star City event. Um, it really is a quick deck. Uh, it has the potential for a possible turn to kill, um, which I actually saw my friend uh, perform after I handed him the deck. Um, against me, no less, so I saw it firsthand. On turn two, I got attacked for 30 um, with Emrakul and his best buddy, Wormspring Worm. So the deck. I'm sure that was fun for you. And uh, you didn't mention this. What was his record when he played this? He he played two local events, so um, there was a Saturday night uh, legacy, and he went 4 uh, and 0 oh to get first place. Um, Jeez. And then the next night, he brought it to um, a cash tournament, and he went 3-1-1 to draw into top 8, and then we split there, um, just because it was cash payout. <clears throat> so, pretty uh, pretty explosive deck, if not a little bit inconsistent. Um, his only loss in the second day was, uh, was at my hands, so uh, I feel like I got justice because he was playing with my deck. There was a, a, a variant, uh, one of the guys at the store is, is playing the big red deck, and he's splashing just a, a hair of white. Um, and he's got silences, and uh, or is it Orm's Chance out of the board? Um, which is pretty sweet. Is he also playing Caracas to go uh, combo with Sneak Attack? Uh, he may. He he posts on the, uh, the source as well, and I think he's active in whatever big red thread exists uh, there. I think he calls his, like... Uh, uh, Ginger Big Red or some variant of it. But yeah, splashing a little bit of white just to give you some game um, with silence and give you some better options out of the sideboard. Yeah, that said, on the sideboard plan, um, I decided to throw in a three ball of three balls. And that actually came, became very instrumental against his victory over Omniscience. Uh, really? It w Turnisphere was good against the combo deck? What is this? Yeah, who would have thought? Um, <laughs> turns out that's also how he crushed me when I was playing with Elves. Um, a turn to Trinisphere <laughs> against a, a deck with only one land in play is uh, what we call Time Walk City. Yeah. Hey, hey, but after July, you get to run your Gaia's Cradles one after the other and get through those Trinispheres, so don't worry. Yeah, Trinisphere is a beating right now. I, I, I'm obviously a proponent of the card, but it's one of the better things uh, when you have a little action in your hand to drop off of a show-and-tell. And particularly in the red section, you get things like boil. So show-and-tell taps out, you put a Trinisphere in play, they have to pass the turn, and then they're welcomed by boil. 
I would love to see a pair of boils in the top 16 of this tournament. How many people know boil is an instant? How great is that? Yeah. I, I would cast it sorcery speed, just like Brainstorm. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, you run it out, you play your fourth land for the turn, right? And just, you assume. and just jam out boil. Like, don't even think twice. Land boil, go. Uh, 100%. That's the correct play. Um, you did mention the uh, the legend rule, and I think there was one topic that we missed um, during our initial podcast discussing the rules change. Nice segue, was... Corey. Nice. That's what I'm here for. Uh, Pro level. Keeping on the schedule, uh, the change to sideboard rules, um, which I think we discussed briefly but never actually got into a discussion about... Um, Effectively, your sideboard can be up to 15 cards when you register your deck. Um, which means, to 99.9% .9 of people, it's going to be 15 cards and a 60-card main deck. But there is the possibility of running a 61-card deck list, for instance, um, a deck that runs a lot of Tutors, or Greensun Zenith, or even Knight of a Reliquary. Um, for instance, I've many times ran a 61-card deck list where Maze of If was a 61st card. Um, now I have the option of running a 14-card sideboard and trimming down the deck for unneeded slots uh, against, let's say, maybe combo, where I need to really have that efficiency going. Yeah, I think where you're going to really see it is control deck, boards against control deck, where going up to 62 cards or whatever just doesn't matter because it's going to be a 7-8 to eight turn game. And you're going to see so many cards. Um, and decks with tutors, too. I think you're going to see, uh, you know sort of bigger main deck. Yeah, I think for a deck like, say, Miracles, where you're running, if you're running the Enlightened Tutor plan, you know, bring in the extra Blood Moon or something like that, or the extra Humility, just to have, because you know that you're going to be able to tutor it up, is totally fine. I mean, I, we can't deny that the math changes when you when you tweak from, you know, 60 to 61 to 62. That's undeniable. However, does it matter enough for the matchup that you're in? Maybe or maybe not, right? I agree that when you have a tutor package, uh, that's when I think it'll be most relevant, because I know I play Thopter Sword Countertop, and one of the hardest decisions every time I sideboard is, well, which one of these Enlightened Tutor tu targets do I take out to put in another one? And I think you're right, that's one where we might just bring in an extra one or two cards and say, you know what, I'm not going to be trying to draw these anyway, I'm trying to Enlighten Tutor for them, so it doesn't matter where they are in my deck. Now, my philosophy on 61 or 62 card deck lists almost always falls into the game plan of I need just half a land more. If I could find a spell to cut to play an extra land, I would be happy. Unfortunately, I feel really, really positive and really confident about this, let's say, uh, 46 cards non-lands, and I need that just little bit more land. Um, that's the only time I feel that a 61st card is justifiable. I mean, for anyone familiar with statistics, um, you know, the impact is actually pretty negligible. Like, for all, the, for all the grief people get for running 61 card decks, it doesn't actually have a whole lot of impact. But, um, but a deck that has three or four tutor mechanisms, um, the negligible impact is washed away by the flexibility of having your one of warmth or whatever you want to stick in your deck. Um, because you really have forewarned, you know, so. I mean, it's the whole, like, buying a lottery ticket, you know, your chances are one in however many million, but if you never buy a ticket, you're not entered in the draw, right? So, I mean, having humility in the main, you know, 
doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to see it, but at least if you do see the card to go get it, hey, you're in business. Hey, Otherwise, it, you might just lose that game. If you run a one-of in your deck, you have about 11% chance of seeing it in your opening hand. That's going to matter against the Shontel deck when they drop down an Emrakul. True. Uh, Kobe, you were saying before about the, um, about Belcher. Yeah, so we mentioned, we are kind of talking before the show about um, potential new strategies being developed as of this rule change. And one of these um, that came across to my mind, uh, more so from the vintage perspective, um, where you often see Leyline of Anticipation in quick combo decks, um, trying to essentially beat out Workshop. Um, and Leyline of Anticipation allows you to do that, you just plop it down from your opening hand and now your entire hand is instant speedable. Um, one of the potential changes from going up to let's say 64 cards is being able to keep the same 60 stock list while having the added benefit of um, getting that ley line and comboing off on let's say turn zero before your opponent even gets to take his upkeep. That downside, of course, is now that you're adding four extra cards to your deck, you're less likely to see that ley line. But the potential still exists. Exactly. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with how to figure this all out yourself, your local community college certainly has math classes you can go to, which will teach you all about the hypergeometric distribution and how to calculate these. And in my experience, the guy who teaches you will have a, an extremely thick Russian accent that you won't be able to understand. Uh, at the Georgia Institute of Technology, it's almost exclusively a cabal of Chinese men, So, but uh, your mileage may vary. <laughs> Alright, what was next on the list? Uh, that's all we've got. Do we have any upcoming events? Actually, we do. Uh... For the greater Vancouver, Canada area, not Vancouver, Washington, mind you. Um, we're having the Summer Legacy Classic. So, what that is, is every season we try to get together a bunch of people who play Legacy from all over the province. And hopefully we're trying to get some people from the States to come out and play Legacy. So, this, uh, this year it's August uh, 17th uh, at SFU Burnaby. And basically what it's going to be is going to be a $30 buy-in, and it's gonna, I'm just going to give out dual lands. So as many people as we get, I'm just going to give out more and more dual lands. Will they come with care. a Ziploc I don't care bag? How many people we get. I have the Ziploc bag of dual lands right here. So the point is, basically, I just I have a bunch of extra revised duels, and I want them to get out into the Magic community because I don't need them. Well, Matt, I can so, uh, go ahead and email you my mailing address, and you can just give those to me. <laughs> Well, I'd rather spread them out in the local legacy community. <laughs> so, if you want more information about this tournament, if you're somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, like, say, NorCal or Oregon, and you're thinking about coming up, you'd like more information, you can email the uh, the podcast here, and I'll, re I'll respond. So, the email is everydayeternalcast at gmail.com. And if this interests you, I'll, uh, I'll definitely email you back the link to the Facebook page so you can find out a little more about it. And we can put that in the show notes. There you go. Oh, okay. That works too. You know, whatever. Um, I'd also like to uh, make a quick reminder for uh, anyone in the Southern California or Nevada, Arizona, NorCal, vicinity, uh, essentially the lower West Coast, because, um, you know, Matt is in the upper West Coast. 
um, about the MTG Deals uh, Open Weekend. Uh, this is going to take place on July 6th and 7th, um, with some grinding events on July 5th. Uh, got about a $9,000 cash purse um, between the two days, as well as a uh, couple of uh, power raffles on Saturday and Sunday. Um, the Legacy Tournament will actually be on Saturday, July 6th, with a Mox giveaway as a raffle. Um, and a Black Lotus will be given out on Sunday for the Standard Tournament. So, if you're in the area or uh, looking for some good competition, come check it out. Uh, it's going to also be the grand opening of uh, MTG Deal's new Tournament Center. Uh, 12,000 square feet of um, nice, fresh rug to be played on. Wow, that's pretty big. It's almost the size of Sean's house. Yeah, it's amazing what you can afford in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, Atlanta's economically depressed, and um, since we're here in the South and are all debtor states, the real estate's really cheap. So, Hey, I thought we weren't going to be talking about uh, speculation on this podcast. No, that's fair. Would you say that we're going Magic to be quiet about speculation? Uh, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I did Sean? that. Sean, is it good to have land? Well, I actually don't really have land. I have a small backyard. I actually live in town in Atlanta. For those of you who have come to Atlanta for magic oh. events and gone up to Gwinnett, that's not Atlanta. That is like suburban Hades, otherwise known as the land of Gwinnisha. Um, so I live in actual Atlanta. But anyway, but not, but not downtown, um, You know, which is something out of a zombie apocalypse movie. So I live... This is the second zombie reference in a row, by the way. <laughs> hey, are we done with magic oh, yet or not? Yeah, I think we can close out the show at this point. So. so who's going to see World War Z? Or who read the book, knows that the movie has fuck squat to do with the book, and is still going to go see the movie anyway? I don't know. I might go see it. I haven't read the book, but I heard it was good. And then when I heard the movie is unrelated to the book, I'm not sure if I want to see it. But, I mean, it's got a giant budget. It must be at least entertaining. Yeah, is it gonna? Hey, let's close out the guys. Let's let's close let's close out the show, uh, and then we can just ramble on. <laughs> okay. So, so, Corey, do you want to do? It? Sure, Mister Corey. Uh, and that concludes uh, the Eternal Podcast episode three. Thank you everyone for joining. I'm Jacob Corey. I'm, I'm Sam, Sam Graven, and I just interrupted Sam. <laughs> and I'm Matt Pavlik. Thanks for listening. Adios.